Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hey there, welcome to the SLP Now podcast. It's Marisha, and today we have a very awesome guest, Amy Graham. She has been a speech-language pathologist for 20 years, and she's the owner of Graham Speech Therapy, which is a private practice in Colorado Springs that specializes in speech sound disorders. She's listed on the Apraxia Kids Directory of SLPs with expertise in apraxia, and she's also prompt trained and brings a wide range of expertise to the conversation that we're going to have today. Um, And she's also worked in a variety of settings. She's uh, worked in public and charter schools, acute care, rehab hospitals, audiology clinics, and now she's in her private practice. So she's been in the trenches. She's seen all the things, and she has so many practical strategies and tips to share with us. And then just before we dive in, if you don't follow Amy Graham on Instagram or any social media platform, really, Facebook, I guess, would be the other one, you definitely should. She does an amazing job supporting and equipping SLPs um, with really practical strategies. I just love her video demonstrations on there. So if you love this podcast episode and you want to learn more from her, that's definitely one place I would highly recommend. And I'm sure we'll talk about others throughout the podcast. Um, So without further ado, let's bring on Amy Graham. Hi, Marisha. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I am so excited to have this conversation with you um, because we have a lot of students on our caseloads. Like we often work on articulation and the oral motor exam is something that we might not always do. If we're being real, it's something that I didn't always do a great job with. Um, And then I think it'll be really exciting just to dive into all of the pieces that we can look at in an oral facial exam and then also um, how we can use that to kind of work through our therapy. And I, I've been getting several questions about it and you are the perfect person to break that down. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy to. I know I've heard from quite a few SLPs myself, just even through social media or who have reached out to me just saying that, you know, they, they're not confident giving an oral mech because they don't really feel like they had enough training on it. And so you're right. I think it's something that tends to be left out of our evaluations. Yes. And then before we dive into all of those amazing tips and tricks, can you tell us a little bit more just about how you came to the field of speech language pathology and how you came to specialize in speech sound disorders? Sure. Um, Well, many, many years ago, (laughs) when I was a child, uh, my sister actually had to have speech therapy. And um, now looking back, I know exactly what she was working on. She had uh, multiple phonological um, processes going on. So she had a phonological delay. Um, And she also had some residual articulation errors going on back then too. So um, 
but I was probably, gosh, nine or 10, I guess. She was a little younger than I was. Um, and I had to go to all her speech sessions because we were homeschooled. And so I got to do all my homework in the waiting room while she was back with the speech therapist, the SLP. And so I just remember thinking as a kid, thinking, wow, this is kind of a cool office. They had a big fish tank. It looked pretty. It was a nice place to go. And so it was that kind of planted the seed for um, what would later become my chosen profession. Yeah, I love that story. And it's a lot funny to hear how we all kind of end up in this space. Uh-huh. And you ended up working in a lot of different settings. How did you land on private practice and speech sound disorders, given right. all yeah. the things that could have been? Yeah, I know. I, I you know, changed my major a couple of times in college, like we are all prone to do. Um, and then I eventually landed on um, calm disorders, communicative disorders. Um, and then basically halfway through my uh, undergrad found out you had to have a master's degree. And man, that was a shock. <laughs> I didn't realize that, but I'd already put some time in. So um, I just went with it. And I really think when I was taking those undergrad and graduate courses, the classes that just always jumped out at me were the motor speech classes, the um, child speech disorders classes. They just always appealed to me. And honestly, when I was, you know, a child, that's all I thought speech therapists did. I think that's all most people think speech pathologists do is just work on R's and S's. And honestly, that's all I thought we did too, which surprisingly, that is what appealed to me initially. So that's, after even going through all our training and all of our different, um, all of my, the places that I worked, I ended up landing on it. Um, I think uh, I, I had so much um, experience in the schools as well because I did my CFY in the schools, um, and you know just working on all the different language autism. I need, I worked in special day classes. But I just always came back to those speech sound disorders. I think um, for one thing for me, when you do an assessment, I think it's so straightforward. I think you can hear immediately like, "Ooh, yep, that there's a there's gliding going on there. Yep, there's a lateral list. And for me, the um, the assessment is super straightforward. So that that appealed <laughs> to, to, to me as well. And then um, I just have always loved that kind of mechanical nature of the art, you know, if you know where, if your tongue is hitting your alveolar ridge in the right spot, you know exactly what sound it's going to make if you've got um, the right breath support. And so I just feel like it just came naturally to me. Um, it, it just was like hearing under underlying etiologies as well. Like if I, you know, you hear the hyponasality, the hypernasality, you're like, okay, there's something going on with that velopharyngeal mechanism. Um, and it just, just appealed to me, I suppose. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's funny because I feel like I was drawn to the field for a similar reason. And Mm -hmm. it was kind of different. I was studying abroad and I got to work with a speech language pathologist on accent reduction. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time I was feeling, so I was a psych major and I was into all the research and all of that. And it was just so, just so it felt like such fluffy, big concepts, whereas she could tell me exactly where to put the articulator and that systematic kind of nature to things was really interesting. And I think as type A, uh, (laughs) it's generally type A profession, I think that appeals to us. 
Oh, I completely agree. I think just, you know, when, as I was working on kids and they have these language goals and vocabulary, I thought, okay, great. We're working on all these vocabulary words, but you know, how do you truly measure somebody's vocabulary when they're 11 or 14 or, you know, and it's just, I just feel like you have to take a small little sample, which with assessment and speech sound disorders, it's like, yep, they're 90% on, you know, phrase level and we're good and let's keep going. Um, And then also too, I think the treatment approaches, if you know what type of speech sound disorder you're dealing with and you know evidence-based practice, you're going to pick the most appropriate treatment approach and you just go with it. And I feel like, you know, like if you've got a phonological kid, I'm, I'm going to look at maybe a, maybe cycles approach, minimal pairs, maximal oppositions. If I have a child with, with obvious motor speech issues that has childhood apraxia, I'm going to use, you know, principles of motor learning and, you know, dynamic temporal and tactile cueing. And, and I just feel like it's so much more clear cut because there's, there seems to be a decent amount of research, at least right now, there can always be more, (laughs) but as far as what is the most, has the most evidence behind it as far as treatment too. So that's, that's also what I love about speech sound disorders. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really amazing because Like I know a lot of us aren't feeling as confident about the oral motor exams, but I feel like you have, you're going to give us a way to make that more clear cut and easy too. I hope so. (laughs) That's the whole plan. (laughs) Um, So before we dive into all of those logistics around that, why is it important to do an oral MEC exam in the first place? Oh, that is a great question. I think because... We have to understand, in order to, ch- to choose an appropriate intervention, you have to stand, understand the nature of the disorder to begin with. And I think part of doing that is either identifying or ruling out um, those structural and or functional contributors. So, like, for example, I, I hear <clears throat> I'll have SLPs contact me because I have a, a decent following on Instagram. And so I get um, direct messages all the time and I'll get questions like, gosh, I've got this kid who, you know, he's just, he doesn't seem to have a speech problem, you know, when I give him an Arctic test, but man, his intelligibility is just terrible and connected speech. Um, you know, but so I, you know, oftentimes I'll ask, well, what did the oral neck exam or the oral facial exam show you? Um, and so many times they're like, you know, I'm not sure it was a really thorough one. So maybe I should do it again. And so I'll ask questions like, well, you know, was there any overall weakness of the articulators? You know, that could maybe, you might want to think about dysarthria. And so I think it can reveal a lot about the underlying issue. Um, like, for example, um, maybe the oral, <clears throat> the oral MEC exam is, you know, everything's with the normal, you know, within normal limits and there are no issues and the child has, you know, an obvious phonological issue. Well, you're not going to have to work on strength, strengthening, you know, or over over articulation, basically, of those articulators. You're going to work on more of a linguistic approach. Uh, <clears throat> so, excuse me. In other words, I just think it helps us rule rule in or rule out those structural and functional issues that we may have to address that we would miss otherwise. An articulation test is not going to show that. Yeah. Can you give us a couple concrete examples of um, maybe like a couple, ki- maybe one or two kids that mm-hmm. you've worked with sure. where you did the articulation test, but the oral motor or oral mech exam uh, revealed something that really helped you 
kind of change course or helped you clarify yeah. where you wanted to go? Absolutely. I can think of one just just a few months ago, actually. This is a child who came to me, already had an IEP, and they were working on um, language, which there were obviously expressive language issues going on. Um, but the parents were just thinking that there's something else. She's just, it's not just that she's having a hard time putting sentences together. She's just really tricky to understand. And so basically all that was done previously was the Goldman Fristo. And, you know, there are not many multisyllabic words on the Goldman Fristo. Um, and so really nothing much showed up. There was maybe, a, I think there were issues with a TH, but at her age, it was like, okay, we should work on that. But that's probably not what's contributing so much to her unintelligibility. And so as I did the oral MEC exam, come to find out she had incredible difficulty with volitional movements, just with non-speech volitional movements. So, you know, to me, that's always a clue of, ooh, are there some motor planning issues? And so that's all included in the oral MEC exam. And so that that's basically, that's not going to give me any diagnostic information, but it certainly is going to raise some red flags if, if children have issues with volitional non-speech and speech movements as well. And so then my little, you know, little question mark goes off in my head about, okay, well, I'm going to consider childhood apraxia of speech as a contributor. Um, and so then, you know, we did, went on to do the diadochokinetic rates and boy, were they jumbled up and just, she had so much difficulty with the patika, 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 and the um, discoordination of those movements um, were kind of all over the place. And she even told me, she's like, man, that's really hard to do. And then what that did is made me think, okay, we're not going to just look at an art, a regular old articulation or phonology test. I need to do a motor speech assessment with this child because that's what I suspect might be the underlying issue or at least a contributing factor. And we did that. And there were obvious, obvious motor speech issues, the longer um, and more complex utterances I gave her to produce. She had much, much more difficult uh, time producing them. And so things like that, where, you know, you give the kid a straight arctic test, oh, they're fine. You know, they're maybe borderline. We'll just work on TH. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you might find something else that is really contributing to um, their intelligibility. Yeah, that was such a great example. And I feel like I've heard you talk about this before, but there's also structural components that might not be Absolutely. totally obvious. Can you give one example of something like that that came up in your practice? Yes, absolutely. So I, you know, sometimes we'll get kids who sound a little hypernasal. And so that's really one of the parts of our the oral mech exam too that we have to look at is you gotta look inside the kid's mouth, not just how they're moving their tongue. You need we need to be looking at their palate and their velum and seeing if there's um any structural issues happening because Oftentimes, also, I've gotten DMs from other um, SLPs, and, and they're thinking, man, we've done therapy with this child. They're hypernasal, and they just, or I'll, sometimes I'll even hear, you know, they, were, they have a substitution of, um, they keep saying M for B or N for D. And of course, that in my mind, my red flag is, well, that's hypernasality. So how is that velopharyngeal mechanism working, or is there anything structural? And you would be surprised how many times I have found a bifid uvula, which um, can be an indicator of a submucosal cleft, which can really impact um, velopharyngeal um, insufficiency or any kind of velopharyngeal dysfunction. 
um, could be there. So that that's a child that really needs to be referred to a specialist and not just an ENT, but um, a team of specialists. So that you have a craniofacial team or a cleft palate team. Um, here in Colorado Springs, we have a VPI team that I refer to when I see that. Um, so some sometimes those things you know, they don't come up. You just might think, well, that's just an articulation um, substitution. It's no big deal. But if a, a stop is changing to a nasal, that should be a little red flag that you need to consider that nasality might be an issue and it could be structural. And we're not the ones that can rule that out. We need to send those those kids to a team for that. Yeah, so helpful. And I hope that we're all convinced that this is that these are important things to look into when we're evaluating a student with speech sound disorders. Um, and so I'm curious, can you give us, because you touched on a lot of these things already, but can you give us a general overview of what you're looking for in the oral MEC exam, kind of like which components you go through? Like, do you have a process that like, you always go it through it in the same way? Or I do. Exactly. Um, that's pretty much the reason I developed this particular checklist style format is because, and what's the saying necessity is the mother of invention, because I was looking for an easy to use kind of a quick and simple checklist style form that I could just take with me wherever I'm doing an assessment to go through. And so I had to really think through, okay, well, what all am I going to be looking for? And really it's everything that I was taught in grad school and have learned through taking other you know, um, <clears throat> continued ed courses just through the years about what we really need to be observing. So for example, um, the first thing I, I go through is I'm just going to observe the child's face at rest. I'm looking for symmetry. Is there any drooping? Um, because sometimes you, you might be surprised that some, the kids that we get might have some underlying neurological issues happening, um, that parents aren't even aware of. And we might be the first people to, notice these things. I, you know, pediatricians miss this kind of stuff all the time. So sometimes because we're looking so in depth at their, you know, oral facial structures, we might see things that nobody else will. And so I'm always looking, just observing symmetry, um, their tone of their face at rest. I'm looking if the child is mouth breathing. If you have a child that's coming to, if I have one that's coming to me and they've got a pretty significant, you know, frontal list, there's a lot of um, distortions and their mouth breathing and their mouth is open all the time, you know, that might be a child that we need to look at also how their feeding is, how their swallow function is, because that could be a big um, issue as well. Um, I'm looking for how their jaw is, is moving. Do they have a good range of motion? Sometimes I have kids who either their jaws are not opening sufficiently for speech. That's something we have to teach about how to make those vowels better with um, good jaw grading. Um, is their jaw move, moving um, symmetrically when they're speaking? Um, I look at dentition. So, you know, sometimes if children have cross bites, underbites, overbites, sometimes that can impact speech. However, I will say as, as I go through this list, just because you notice something doesn't mean that, okay, well, we can't work on anything until they get their braces on or because I am always surprised at how kids can compensate for structural differences with their oral structures. Um, so, but it is always something good to note because if a child doesn't have um, good progress in therapy, you might want to go back and think, well, okay, well, it could be because of these structural differences. Um, I'm looking at 
the pharynx. I'm looking to see how big their tonsils are, if they have tonsils, um, which is also why we need to do a case history because maybe they had their tonsils removed and that's why you don't see tonsils. Um, and if they had their tonsils removed and um, there's nasality in the child's speech, then that might be something you need to make a referral for as well. I've had that happen several times. Um, I'm going to look at the hard and their soft palate. You know, there could be fistulas that have never been noticed. There could be um, submucosal clefts. So I'm looking for all of these. I, I'm even looking at their soft palate to see what kind of movement I'm seeing with that soft palate when they're phonating. Um, <clears throat> is there you know, lateral movement, is it moving towards the center? Does it look like it's moving up a little bit? We need to, and sometimes, you know, if, if there are soft neurological signs, you might see um, some asymmetries in even the velar movements. Um, I look at their lips, how, you know, are they able to pucker their lips? This is another way to kind of check for um, oral non-speech oral apraxia do they have a hard time doing what you're asking them to do like um can you pretend to blow bubbles for me can you pucker your lips like you're going to give mom a kiss um do they have any issues with that and then do they have any strength issues um i, I use a tongue depressor a lot of times to have them push against my tongue depressor with their lips just to kind of gauge how how strong their muscles are not that um, you need a lot of strength for speech because we all know non-speech oral motor exercises are not um, effective for improving speech if, if it is <clears throat> if weakness is an issue. But it's just something that's that is good to note because if you ever have to refer you to another specialist, it's something to have in your notes that we should all know about. Um, so there are lots of things with the lips. I'm looking for rapid movements for are they able to puff their cheeks out and hold their lips closed. Um, can they maintain that air in their oral cavity or does it escape through the nasal cavity? Um, do you hear any air escaping? Is that maybe the velopharyngeal mechanism? Um, are there issues there? I'm looking at their tongue. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm looking for range of motion. I'm looking for weakness. And there are, you know, I ha we have ways and I list them all out in the oral, my oral facial exam on how to do that. Um, but I'm looking also for as far as range of movement goes, I know it's kind of controversial right now in our profession about tongue ties or, you know, shortened lingual freedoms. But I mean, if it's really restricted and that poor kid can't lift the tip of their tongue very far at all, then even though, okay, maybe you could get them to say a certain speech sound, it's going to be so effortful that in connected speech, maybe that's going to be an issue. Um, so it's just something to note. And then I'm always looking at um, rapid side to side movements as well with um with the the lingual movements and then i at the very end after we're, we kind of go through all of those oral facial structures and their functions um i have the diadochokinetic syllable rates um at, at the very end of the um, assessment sheet and then i because i know i've heard from a lot of slps that okay great i know how to assess strength i know how to assess all this stuff but what do i do with this information and so I have a little section at the end too, to kind of walk you through, okay, well, if you're seeing these four things, then you might want to consider a referral here. Or if you see these three things, you might want to consider looking at feeding issues or tongue thrust assessment, or, you know, you might want to consider um, a motor speech assessment based on these findings. So that's, I, I try to help walk through any SLP with whatever experience any SLP has. If, if you've 
you know, taking your anatomy and physiology classes, you might have to go back and review a little bit um, and even neurology, but um, it, I tried to make it as easy to use as possible. Yeah. And I personally love the like checklist format and it's been so helpful in just like feeling confident. I know I looked at all of these different components mm-hmm. and that gives me enough to go off of, especially with those jumping off points. That's such a Good. helpful resource. Right. And then, um, cause I think especially for a newer clinician, they might be like, what is normal strength? Like, what is it supposed to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you suggest for someone who's still trying to figure that out? Well, probably the best tip I can give is go assess about five or six typical developing kids that don't have a speech sound disorder. <laughs> because in order for us to be comfortable saying, yeah, that doesn't look right. This That's kind of um, outside of the realm of typical development. We need to know what typical looks like. Um, so that would be my best advice is find a cousin, a niece, a daughter, a son, a nephew, um, a child of a friend where that would, that you can just go and say, Hey, I just have this little quick assessment. It it won't take long. It's about, you know, 10, maybe 15 minutes at the very most. It'll be fun. Um, can I assess your child really quickly? Um, and just have a good idea of what typical looks like. And the only way to do that is to assess typical kids. Yes. I love that. And I think it's a good way because it'll probably be easier to run through the assessment with a friend's kid versus a friend in the therapy room. Um, So it could be a good way to like get that flow down and kind of get the process. Um, So speaking of actually administering the assessment, what are your tips for make like getting through because there's a lot of different things that we're asking students to do we work with a wide range of students who might have difficulty in several aspects of like following their directions and attending like what are your go-to tips and strategies in terms of actually administering that right yeah the oral mic exam can be tricky um because especially if, you, if a child maybe has a bad experiences with medical professional professionals and you're coming at him with a tongue depressor and a flashlight <laughs> and he's like, whoa, I, do, I know what this is all about. I'm going to get, you know, get a shot in a minute or, you know, it just kind of it can freak him out a little bit. So I think we have to be really careful to understand a child's medical history so that we can be prepared for that. Um, so. What I recommend, I one of my absolute best tips is I have a throat scope and I got it several years ago, I think when it kind of first came out and it just changed the dynamic of doing an oral facial exam because the minute you show that child that, oh, no, 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 we're not going to stick this icky wooden thing in your mouth. <laughs> what, look at this, this is my lightsaber. And that's, I've talked to so many SLPs and that's what they call it too, because it is, it looks like a little lightsaber. It's a light up. Um, flashlight basically that sticks on a plastic uh, tongue depressor that basically lights up the whole tongue depressor. So that when you stick it in the child's mouth, it just lights up the oral cavity. And you, for one thing, it's better for us because I can see so much better. I don't have to have a tongue depressor in one hand and a flashlight in the other. It's now I'm only using one hand to hold it. And then I can kind of help 
maybe hold the child's hand or kind of, you know, show them what I'm doing with my other hand. And so it kind of frees me up to either write with one and and do the assessment with the other. Um, But the kids love it. We call, I mean, sometimes I'll even have them practice with a little hand puppet, you know, themselves and say, here, why don't you do it first? Especially if they're a little timid about um, initiating the oral mech exam. And so I'll have them do it. That's another another tip is have a little hand puppet on hand um, where they can practice doing it. And you you give them the instructions like, OK, tell them to open their mouth wide. OK, now it's your turn. And so you can kind of have a little turn taking um, game that you're you could kind of make it into a game. OK, now it's your turn. Oh, we're going to do something really silly now. I want you to move your tongue back and forth like this. Um, and so I think trying to make it as fun as possible. And I even tell my kids, I'm going to ask you to do some weird stuff right now. Are you ready? It's going to be so silly. And so just to kind of make it a game. Um, sometimes, though, if, if that's just not working, um, I, I will often um, just save it for the last thing that I do in my assessments. I will, you know, we'll do the easy stuff. Like you're just going to name all these pictures I show you. And then once we're kind of comfortable, we've maybe... I've gotten a good language sample because we're talking a little bit back and forth and they're, they're comfortable with me now. Then that's when I'll, you know, bring out my throat scope or my tongue depressor and say, Hey, let's try something crazy. Now let's do something a little silly. And then they're a little more comfortable sometimes if I I hold it off to the very last thing. Um, But then sometimes I think you have to be okay with doing it across multiple sessions. I've even told parents that, that, you know what, he is just not, wanting to open his mouth for me today. Um, so I tell you what, let's let's hold off on writing this report or I'll write my report and say, you know, we're going to get this information later once uh, more rapport is built between the client and myself. And so sometimes I will just either put it off t- down the road or I'll just say, you know, we were only able to maybe get this first part of it where I just kind of observed their facial structures, but they weren't willing to stick their tongue out for me or, you know, have me kind of tiptoe that tongue depressor along their tongue. So I, I, we're just, we're going to get the rest of it at a, at a next session. So I think sometimes we have to be okay with that. And I think if we explain that to parents, um, they completely understand. Yeah. Those are great tips. I also love the throat scope. Like what an amazing invention oh, that was. Fabulous. Because <laughs> it helps us and it's super cool. Oh yeah. And then, yeah, I love the idea of using the puppet and making it a game, being silly around it. And like, just, I mean, we model it first, just naturally when we're going through, but I think that it's nice because it is such a visual activity, like Mm -hmm. that we have built-in supports there, um, even for a variety of students. So that and I even think explaining to the child what we're doing too, because I think sometimes we get so used to doing these assessments. We're just, okay, now do this, now do this. And they're kind of thinking, well, what, why? But so I will explain to them, it's like, oh, you know what? I need to look at your tongue because sometimes your tongue might move a different way than mine. So that's what I'm, I'm just looking to see how it's moving. That's all. And so I think if we kind of give them a good explanation sometimes, especially if they're a little older, they're much more apt to, to go along and, and be cooperative during the assessment. I thought of one more thing, though. I had um, I was speaking with Carrie Ebert, um, a new friend of mine who's a fabulous apraxia expert, um, about how she can 
kind of get her really little ones because she works with um, early intervention. And so she will have the kids lay backwards on a, an exercise ball and have mom or dad there. And as they roll them back, she says, they always open their mouth really wide. So you can get a good look inside their mouth when you do that, as you kind of roll them back just in a playful way on the exercise ball. So that's an, another great tip that she gave me that I had to pass on. Ooh, that is genius. I yeah. love that one. Loved it. <laughs> that's a good little hack there. Oh, good. Um, okay. And so that's super helpful. I feel like we know why we want to administer these exams in the first place. We have a really good idea of what we're looking for and what we might do if we see certain components. And then we also have a nice tool belt of different tricks that we can use if the student doesn't want to open his or her mouth or if we're just having some challenges there. Um, so then let's talk a little bit more about what we do once the exam is done and we have that data, um, because I know sometimes there can be some more controversial findings and it's not always super clear what the correct path is. Um, so can we talk, like one of the ones that came up, I think is tongue tie. So right. what would you do if you find tongue tie? Well, I think we have to understand to what degree that tongue tie might be impacting speech. And sometimes we don't really know. Um, I think there's a tendency to go to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, um, when, you know, there are SLPs out there and researchers who just automatically, no, nope, tongue tie has nothing to do with speech. Don't worry about it. Maybe feeding, but not speech. The the research doesn't show that it has an impact at all. However, when you when I read the research, and you know, I'm sure I need to speak with a, a an expert who has really read the research more than I have. But it's not that the what I have found anyway is not that the a, a tongue tie in general um, doesn't impact speech. It's that when the tongue tie is clipped or you know, released, whatever you call it, that um, they haven't found that it has made an impact in speech improvement. But there, to me, there's so many variables that haven't been looked at. I mean, have you looked to see if what kind of therapy did they have beforehand or post? And I feel like I, at least in my looking into that, those, the literature, I haven't, that it hasn't answered that question for me. So However, though, there are other SLPs out there, too, who think, oh, it's a they have a tongue tie. That's their problem. Let's clip it. That's it. I I'm not there either. So because I don't think the research shows that, obviously. So what I do is I note the to what degree that tongue is restricted. I think we should know it. I don't think we need to completely disregard it um, because I've seen kids who, oh, my gosh, their tongue is so restricted that they can't even lick an ice cream cone. They can't stick it past, stick their tongue out past their lips. And if you don't think that's going to impact speech, then I'm, I wonder how many kids you've worked with with speech sound disorders, because I've had kids who just, I mean, honest to goodness, they back everything because their tongue tip will not raise to that alveolar ridge in quick connected speech. Now you might be able to get them to do it at the single word level, but as far as generalization goes, those kids are going to have probably a much harder time um, doing those movements quickly and rapidly um, and coordinated in connected speech. So for me, it's something I always note. Um, however, I've had some kids that I've seen are not that, they are restricted, but not to the degree to 
maybe where they're, they can maybe stick their tongue out a little bit if they open their mouth wide and their tongue can reach or can at least, you know, get pretty close or halfway up to the, to the palate. Um, but the spe- but they don't have any issues with S's or T's or D's or those alveolar sounds. Um, then it's something I note for later. However, I will say I've had a few kids who um, I've noticed a, I would say mild to moderate lingual restrictions. Um, we've done therapy and the, in the issues have been an R actually for the two that I'm thinking of. And boy, we just couldn't get this R sound. We, I tried every tool in my toolbox. We did it for a few months, three, four months, I think we did therapy for. And so, but I had back in my oral facial exam that, you know what, this uh, restriction was noted, this lingual restriction was noted. Um, and so I've gone back to the parent and I've said, okay, look, <laughs> the research doesn't say, yes, if we get this, this tongue tie taken care of, that her speech is going to improve and it's going to work. However, we've tried therapy for this long. I feel like she just is not able to elevate the back part of her tongue high enough um, to get it in the right spot to make to make that really good R sound. Because if you think of R, I mean, you have to elevate the back of your tongue, you have to tense it. There's all these things you have to do. And so, I, in my in my opinion, I think you should consider it. I never tell a parent you have to have this done because it's a medical procedure. I'm not a doctor. I'm not um, a pediatric dentist, which is who I refer out to for those kinds of. Um, referrals, those issues. And so I'm not the one who's going to say, yes, this has to be done, but I will share with the parent what I know. And what I know is that we've done therapy. It's not working. There's a restriction. Research doesn't necessarily say it'll help, but you might want to consider it um, because I'm a, I'm all out of my bag of tricks here. And I've had two that I can think of that have had their, um, their uh, tongue tie clip, their whatever, their uh, tongue tie revised, whatever you want to call it. And we've made progress. So not that that's, you know, worth publishing, but I will say that I've had, um, a couple of times where that was the key to what helped them finally, um, produce a particular sound accurately, consistently, and then they were able to actually generalize it much, much quicker. So I guess I'm kind of, I don't know, agnostic as far as, as far as tongue ties go. Um, because I think, it's, it's not something, like I said before, we shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater just because, um, you know, not, the research doesn't show yet that it could be impacting speech, or maybe that research just hasn't looked at some specifics um, that we can see in clinical practice and maybe not in, in the research yet. Yeah, that's such a helpful case study. that, And it's really cool that you got to see that in action. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Um, have you seen any other factors? Because that just piqued my interest. Have you seen anything else? Because R, I feel like, is one of the sounds that we, a lot of us struggle with. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any other factors that determine difficulty with R? Yeah, kind absolutely. Of- I think one thing that has, I think a lot of our kids with R's have trouble with proprioception, honestly. Because if you think about it, you know, when you tell them to make a T or a D, what are you going to tell them? You put your tongue tip up and you put it right here behind your teeth and you just pop your tongue, ta, 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 just like that. It's easy. You know, it's, it's visual. You can see exactly what to do. Okay. Well, how do you explain what to do with your tongue for an R? <laughs> well, 
Um, you kind of bunch it up in the back. You maybe you're going to tell them to curl their tongue if you're doing bunched or you know retroflexed versus bunched. And so you know there's all these very kind of nebulous descriptors that you're we're trying to explain to this child to do. And it's not like, you know, for bilabials, we can touch their lips and that you can give them that tactile feedback. Well, that's a little harder with an R sound. And so I found when I've given um, this oral facial exam to kids who have those residual R errors, um, they are having a hard time telling where their tongue is in space. So I feel like, I wonder if sometimes these kids with our, our problems who just can't ever quite get it, it almost always sounds even a little bit vowelized. They're just having trouble telling where their tongue is. And so if you have a child with proprioceptive issues and really that will, that can often come across in that oral facial exam, you know, you tell them, okay, don't look in this mirror, just look at me, copy what I do. And you can see that they are not doing what you're doing. That might be a proprioceptive issue. It might be a motor planning issue, but it also might be proprioception. And so for me, when I have, when I see a child with that deficit, I use a lot of tactile feedback. And so sometimes I will back up with those kids and we will just get our little, my little swizzle sticks and we will kind of touch the sides of the tongue and the tongue blade. And so that they can feel as they're looking in a mirror, they can feel where I'm where their tongue is in space and, and we practice moving your tongue in, um, in the context of speech a lot of times, but sometimes we just need to figure out where their tongue, they need to figure out where their tongue is when they're, when they're moving it in a particular way. So I think, yeah, that, that's another issue that, you know, that wouldn't, that the only place that would come across is, is really in an oral facial exam an oral mech exam. That is so interesting. And if you identify like the proprioception as a potential challenge, mm -hmm. how, like, I love the ideas and examples that you gave of what you could do in therapy, mm -hmm. but how would that fit into the general context? Would you, and I know it varies for each student, but do you have kind of a general, like, if you notice that, is there something that you generally do in terms of, we just do it like a couple minutes at the beginning or do you spend you know, a lot of time? Like you said, it does, it does totally dependent on the child. Sometimes, you know, they can get it pretty quickly if you give them a mirror um, and they mm -hmm. get visual feedback. Sometimes like, oh, okay, I see that my tongue is not going where I thought it was going. So giving them a mirror helps almost initially. I've had some that we are working for weeks and weeks on trying to um, use tactile feedback along with visual feedback. So we've got a mirror and, you know, maybe a tongue depressor just to kind of say, okay, do you see how we're curling our tongue? You're not curling your tongue. So let me help you with this tongue depressor or this, you know, little toothette or, you know, whatever you use for your, that tactile feedback with your kids. Um, and sometimes it takes a while with some kids. It just depends on the degree to which they have a deficit in that area. And sometimes you'll have a child who it's, it's motor planning plus proprioceptive plus, you know, a few other things. So I think if you have other, if there are other um, contributing factors going on, you might expect therapy just to take even a little bit longer. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think this is a good reminder too, that like, we're not just looking in the mirror, moving our tongue, we're looking in the mirror and doing all those different activities in the context of shaping those different speech sounds. So it's always working towards like that main goal. Um, but are there times when you would stray a little bit more away from that? A stray from? 
just like always having like, because I guess we would break it down and take a step back as we're shaping a new sound and just practice some of those movement components. Well, I I try always as quickly as possible to put it into the, um, into speech. So, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. if we're backing up, what I might do is not even work on R for a little bit, but we'll work on um, another similar phoneme like L and we'll, we'll give a lot of um, tactile and visual feedback pairing L with vowels because they're very similar to the R sound. So if we can put it in the context of speech, I think that I mean, that's always the goal, right? We, I, I don't, we don't want to sit there and just, okay, we're just going to tap on your tongue. Feel that? Yep, that's right. Well, <laughs> we've got to put that into the context of speech as soon as possible. And for me, often it's on our first session. And so we mm-hmm. might, like you said, we might begin a session with, okay, let's do a little feedback here. Let's touch this on your tongue. And I know there are programs um, that actually focus a lot on that. I'm not a big program person. Um, if it has um, a fancy name to it, I granted I have some certifications and some trainings. I, I'm all for gaining knowledge in whatever area might help you w- working with your children. Um, but I'm not a program person because I don't think there's one program that's gonna that's a, a one size fits all. But I think we can definitely glean some helpful. Um, information or some therapeutic techniques from those quote unquote programs. Um, but if, if we also have to balance that with what we do know about evidence-based practice, and that is um, speech improves when you practice speech. And so my goal is to always, even though I'm backing up and might be doing a few non-speech, it, non-speech tasks to kind of build proprioception and sensory awareness, that kind of thing. Um, my goal is to put that in the, within the context of speech ASAP. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like I talk about that all of the time with like what, cause I'm all about literacy based therapy mm-hmm. and it's always about putting it in context, putting right. it in context. Um, and I heard a really cool, um, metaphor analogy from Dr. Ukranitz who is talking about, like she compared and she was talking about language, but I think it applies really nicely to this too. Um, so we can teach, like if we're um, if we're a basketball coach and we're teaching students how to play basketball, we could have them just drop the ball on the floor and because that's a component of dribbling and that's a component of playing the game. But if we if that's all that we work on, if we if it's game time on Saturday and all they know is how to drop the ball, they're not going to be able to participate and um be successful during that game. So I think I just really like that. That's a comparison. great. I love that. Um, so awesome. And that was a super helpful breakdown of that. Um, and so I'm also curious in terms of, is I feel like a lot of us are overwhelmed when it comes to motor speech disorders. And if we, can you just highlight again, what we might see if a student does have difficulty with motor speech, motor planning, like what would we see in the exam and what are some things that you would do based on that? Right. So initially if I see now, granted, this is not a speech, necessarily a speech test because you're looking at non-speech movements. But if you see some groping with volitional 
movements during this oral motor task. If you're asking them to stick out their tongue and, you know, move it side to side, and you've already done a bunch of oral mech exams with typical developing kids, you're going to know what groping looks like. And if, um, you know, typically, you, you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, we could stick our tongue out, move it side to side rapidly. There's no, um, they, they, the rhythmic, the rhythmic movements are, they're able to do pretty rhythmically. And so if you see a child who has difficulty with that and they're groping and they're kind of moving their whole head or they're moving their jaw along with it because they, they're having the hardest time getting their tongue to move, um, quickly, rapidly, and you're just noticing a lot of difficulty with that, um, that's a red flag for apraxia. Um, And then if they're only able to complete it upon imitation, you know, there it's better with imitation. Okay. Well, that's, that means, you know, that they, they need that extra support in order to do that movement. Um, and then also with the, the didocokinetic syllable rates, if, if you're noticing all these issues like poor rhythmicity, coordination, groping um, during those um, oral mech exam tasks, and there's there maybe more than one and a half standard deviations outside the mean for those didocokinetic rates, then to me, those are really big red flags that I need to do a motor speech assessment. And I know this, we're not going into like the full motor speech assessment here, but what are some things that you would look at when you're doing that? When I'm doing the motor speech assessment? Yes. So you're going to look at, and there are some really great um, guidelines. I know um, Edith Strand and I believe our colleague, I don't have it right in front of me, um, have developed the DEMS and gosh, don't ask me to say what it, dynamic motor speech. I can't even tell you what it is, but that has come out recently. Um, and it has some, um, I, I, I just recently was at a, a talk at the Apraxia Kids Conference about how to conduct that assessment. And basically you're kind of walking the child through increasingly more difficult speech, um, syllables, words, phrases, and you're assessing how accurate they are, with different levels of prompting, how the consistency of those productions. And there's a whole, you know, way to assess that um, basically. And there are some other, even Jenny Biorum has a really great um, assessment, an informal assessment to help you kind of walk through what to look for, for a motor speech assessment, but you're looking for accuracy, consistency, um, specifically upon multiple repetitions of words that these child that the children are given to repeat and um and how well they do as those words get increasingly more difficult um vowel vowel production to vowel distortions are, are another um, key component of um, apraxia and as well as coordinating movements between sounds so because these kids have difficulty um with the motor aspect of speech and from going maybe from one syllable to the next. So there might be some pauses, unusual pauses, poor, poor um, rhythmic, uh, what's the word I'm trying to come up with? I can't think of it off the top of my head. But um, so there's many um, different aspects of speech that you're going to look at. And too much for me to probably go into too much right here, but that's kind of a, a general idea. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I think it's, Maybe that'll have to be a whole other episode. Um, but I, yeah, I love the 
um, I got to learn about the DEMS and I just looked it up. It's the Dynamic Evaluation of Motor Speech Skill. There it is. <laughs> um, and it's by uh, Dr. Strand and Dr. Nicali. Yes. I believe is how you say it. Yep. Um, but I got to, I actually, a couple of years ago, I went to an intensive with Dr. Strand and it was so incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I love, like this is also systematic. They have like a nice yes. framework around it. And it's a lot like the odor, oral um oral exam that we've been talking about today. So there's some really nice like things that we could explore and talk about more maybe in a future episode. But that was a really helpful breakdown just to get us started and to know where to look for some resources. So it was the Dems and Jenny Bjorum's resources um, to get started there. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I feel like I've walked away with a lot of good practical tips and strategies and things to look for. Um, I just love all of the practical suggestions and ideas that you shared. Is there anything else that you think is really important to share or something that you just wanted to end on? I think that if you, any SLP, if we don't do an oral MEC exam, and I probably have said this before with any child who has a, a suspected speech sound disorder, Um, I think you're going to miss some things. So I just think, make sure I'll reiterate, make sure you always do one, even if it's just, you know, "Ah, this kid just has an R sound or just, you know, we just have a lisp, no big deal. Always do an oral MEC exam. Um, And then if you're, like I said, if you're unsure uh, about how to interpret those findings and what to do with them, or even, um, you know, just don't have confidence in your ability to understand what you're seeing, reach out to more experienced SLPs. Um, I'm, I'm a sole practitioner, so I'm all by myself. So I have discovered that the, so, the social media outlet of finding other experts within the field has been so great with connecting me with other um, SLPs who have more experience and knowledge base than I do. So I would say if um, to anybody who's even new to giving oral max, reach out to an experienced SLP. Yeah, that is such a great strategy to use regardless of the area that we're working with. And um, yeah, so valuable. And where can, because I feel like everyone is going to want to learn even more from you and check out your videos and just learn all that you have to offer. So where can they find you if they want to find someone? So yeah, if you, my Instagram account is Graham Speech Therapy um, and Graham is G-R-A-H-A-M. And I post, like I think you said earlier, I post real uh, life therapy videos of me doing therapy with all my kids um, whose parents have given me permission to do so. Um, But I record myself doing different therapy techniques. Um, I have more information on how I administer my oral facial exam on there in my highlights on my Instagram account. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Graham Speech Therapy. And um, if you want to purchase the oral mech exam, the oral facial exam is actually what I call it. Um, that's on my website at um, www.grahamspeechtherapy.com. Awesome. And we will share the link to um, the exam and all of the different resources that we mentioned throughout the podcast in the show notes. And that will be at slpnow.com slash 17. Um, so you can go there to find the link to, like I said, the exam, the DEMS, um, the throat scope, all of the good things 
Um, oh, and also Amy's social media platforms. So let us know if you have any other questions about the oral facial exams. Um, but I feel like I think you did a pretty amazing job today. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge and expertise. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.